Hello, I'm Emily Grace, and welcome to the Stages podcast of Bernstein Private Wealth. Life throws lots of challenges at us. We're here to address them. As a principal at Bernstein, I help dynamically wealthy families prioritize what makes money meaningful for them by marrying together family engagement, planning, and philanthropic initiatives with their investments through all markets and life events. And while every market is different as we're witnessing coming out of the current pandemic, what remains constant is the need for guidance and advice through the uncertainty. Helping people navigate the markets and introducing them to some of the smartest investment minds and experts in other fields, whatever the stage in their life, is a real honor. If you or someone you know would like advice or an introduction to my guest, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com. For today's conversation, I've invited Elizabeth Zeitler of New York Medical and Cosmetic Dermatology to join us on the stage. As a dermatologist, Liz uses not just her medical experience of 20 plus years, but also her background in art history to guide her approach to cosmetic dermatology. She spends her time working with patients to correct the signs of aging and help them maintain a natural and youthful appearance. She's seen it all. Liz, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. Of course. Now, we're all stepping out from behind our year of Zoom, where we've had the benefit of touch up your appearance. I may be using it now, in fact. <laughs> but while we thought we had all that time in the world to get organized and prepared due to work, family, a host of other commitments, we're now peeking our heads out and readying for in-person interactions. So Liz, you won't be surprised to learn that from the moment I let people know that we'd be speaking, I've been inundated with quite a few questions <laughs> and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take us through them. Okay, great. Okay, by far the most questions I received were around skincare and wrinkles in general. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the sort of starting place are, what, what's the most important everyday thing that we can do to keep our skin healthy for the long term? Well, I think if you ask any dermatologist, they're going to say the most important thing is sunscreen, because if you wear a sunscreen every day, you're stopping the first part of what the aging process is. I always tell people, you know, if they take a quick look at what their butt looks like or someplace that didn't get sun versus their face, they're going to see what the difference was between a part of their body that didn't get sun and a part of their body that got sun. And you can see what like the effect is of, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of sunshine is on the skin and it's not so hot. So best thing is to work. Like a very dangerous exercise. <laughs> I mean, it is shocking. I mean, it can be like multiple shades lighter. You know, if somebody will come in and think, oh, I'm sort of like a medium tone skin person. It's like, no, you have a permatan. Like, look at what your actual skin color is. You're not somebody who can lie in the sun all day. You're actually like a fairly fair person who over years just got too much sun. So that's a good place to check to see, to know really what your baseline is. So And so, so I'm guessing I should be putting lots of sunscreen on both of my children at four and seven and sort of making it a habit starting today. Yeah, you definitely should. I mean... Obviously when they get older, I mean, I have three kids. So when they were little, I made them wear sunscreen past a certain point, you're not with them every day. So you're, and your, your time where you can actually teach them, you know, to wear sunscreen is limited because before you know it, they're going to be off on their own doing whatever they want, but I definitely would. And then the key thing is to reapply. So the two things that people always forget with sunscreen is 
they either don't put enough on in the first place or they don't reapply it. So those are the two major downfalls with sunscreen where you people will come in and tell me, well, I'm wearing sunscreen, blah, 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 blah. And then you're looking at them and you're like, this can't really be possible. And then when you ask them, do you really reapply it after you go for the run, after you play the two hours of tennis, after you do the 26 mile bike ride? And they're like, no, I sort of don't. That's really where most people run into trouble with sunscreen. They don't reapply it. So should I be, so I wear sunscreen. I have started wearing sunscreen every day. I put it on in the morning before my makeup. I walk to work, I get to the office, I work all day. I then often walk home from work. Should I be applying it before I walk home at the no. end of the day? No, I mean, if you're sitting in the office all day, it's air conditioned, you're not really. A good thing that people can use that I like that, uh, we sell a product in my office. It's by Isden, I guess I can say brands, right? So yeah, of course. But <laughs> And um, it's sort of a, a brush, almost like a translucent yep. powder. So what I would suggest is that you just kind of like take that out of your bag and you just take that and kind of swish it all over your face just as you're leaving. And so that works really well. It's a great product and it just, it's like sheer and light. And it's not as though all of a sudden before you're leaving at five o'clock and it's, you're going home, you're going out and you're putting all sorts of, you know, sunscreen on and- Over my so the best thing is really, I think the best thing is really if you're in and out of office or things like that, just to have one of these brushes that puts, it, it's not enough to wear the brush alone. You know, you can't yes. put that on in the morning and go about your business, but as a touch up um, product, I really like that. It's great. You just, it, it gives a nice look to the skin and it, it works well. That's fantastic. I think I've seen people do that in the park before, sort of just yeah. do a quick apply. Yeah. And then but, but if you were going for a run and then you were going to go have brunch or you know or something like yes that, then you probably should wear sunscreen and truth be told i actually think if you really want to be careful you have to wear a hat because okay. as sunscreen because the thing is there's also two different things so there's sunscreen preventing damage to the collagen in the skin that's like one whole aspect of why you want to wear sunscreen but then there's the whole aspect of not wanting pigment to come out, like freckles or melasma or things that people get. I personally do not think sunscreen does enough for that. I think if somebody doesn't want the melasma to come back or their freckles to come back, they really have to wear a hat and a wide brim hat. Because a lot, because it's, I mean, I know this from a personal point of view, I happen to have freckles that you know, I can do the Fraxel and have my skin look great. And if I was just to rely on sunscreen, all my freckles would come back. You have to wear a hat. You have to wear a hat. I think, isn't that what they say also about, you know, men in golfing, right? The dermatologist can always tell the golfers because, you know, they don't have as much hair on top of their head because they're men and they're of a certain age. And yeah. that's where they get the, the sunspots or the melanoma or... Or any, you know, anything, Run, yeah, just not exactly. Well, men's scalp, that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, <laughs> but the thing is it can't be a bait. So with women, a lot of times, or just in general people, baseball hats don't do enough because what happens is that if you really see what the baseball hat is covering, the whole jawline is not protected by, um, by, uh, by a baseball hat, you know? So, so you really have to wear a wide hat. I like bucket hats because you can just sort of squish them and put them into a bag because obviously it's not practical to like go into Bergdorf and get some like monstrous, you know, hat. Like, what are you going to do with it when you go sit down someplace? You know, the hat needs a whole chair next to you, right? But if you have some sort of squishable, 
canvas bucket hat that you can throw into a bag, then you're probably going to carry it around. If it's some hat that needs, you know, a hat box, you're not going to carry it around. So it can't, you have to be practical about this, like, and think about, am I actually going to use this as a hat? That's really helpful. Because I do have some of those really big ones that, you know, like they say they're great for packing because you put your socks and underwear in the, but like they're not really good for carrying around. Or yeah, if you have young children and you're in the park, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think you have, I, I just always have one of those squishable bucket hats that I can just throw into my bag and take it out. Um, yeah. Right. So now what if, you maybe haven't been the best with the sunscreen or you have been the best, but you haven't reapplied it as often. And you do have sort of some of those wrinkles and you know, you're of a certain age. What can about I, red? One quick comment about sunscreen. Sorry to interrupt you. Yes. Oh yeah, no. So obviously there's a lot of controversy with sunscreen because there's physical blockers and chemical blockers. So I just wanted to sort of say that I actually, I personally, push people towards the physical blockers, which is the zinc oxides and the titanium dioxides, as opposed to some of the more chemical sunscreens. I mean, I'm not like a huge clean beauty person. I gave a talk about it one time for a, a, a night, but that is one area where I, I think it does more. I think you don't really need to put all those chemicals constantly on your whole body. So I actually do tend to tell people to stick to the titaniums and the zinc, you can get them micronized, you can get them tinted so you don't turn so white, but just, and I think on kids, most people don't really want to put all those chemicals on their kids. So they're going to stick yeah. to the the, uh, the physical sunblock. So I just want to sort of get that in there because there's a lot of controversy about like, should I use the chemical sunblocks, the physical sunblocks? So I just wanted to- What should I use? And I guess yeah. that also gets to, to the next question a little bit as we're thinking about sort of next steps and you know, there's a lot of talk about retinoids versus retinol because you know there's a lot of talk about how that's the really the one way to non-surgically fight the wrinkles you already have is there a difference between sort of over the counter and prescription and does it matter how much it costs yeah well first you have to i mean first of all there are plenty of other ways to treat wrinkles that goes without saying but in terms of so all of them are based in sort of vitamin A derivatives. So retinol, which is sold over the counter, that has to be basically, you put it on and then enzymes in your body, in the skin, convert the retinol to retinoic acid, which is actually the active ingredient. So the reason why retinol is, less strong and maybe doesn't do as much, but, but has less side effects is because in converting it, that's a slower process. It depends a little bit on how much is in the product. It depends on how quickly your body converts it from the retinol into the retinoic acid. So it's, it's, a, it's a longer, slower process. And that's why it's over the counter because you're not getting the active ingredient. And, you know, you can look at different products that have retinol in it and, um, and, and you can see, you know, you can look at ingredients to see where it's listed in the ingredients to see 
like, is it the first ingredient? Is it the 10th ingredient? So you sort of know how much retinol is in it. And it's, it's, it's never going to do as much as Retin-A, which is the prescription strength, right? So Retin-All, you have less of a chance of getting irritated by it, getting dried out by it, um, you know, it, 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 of, of it causing any kind of those side effects that you can get with irritation that you can get with Retin-A. But again, it's not going to do as much and it's going to take longer. So that's, really it's not it's not really a cost thing it's just sort of because there's very expensive products that have retinol in it so in the scheme of things having retinol you can get something that's inexpensive versus expensive you know that depends i mean you can get l'oreal regenerist and you can get neutrogena and that's going to be just as effective as some super expensive cream with retinol in it so that's that make a difference um but you just have to understand that retinol is not going to do as much as Retin-A. So Retin-A, you're actually putting on the active ingredient directly onto your skin. So that's going to do more faster. But again, that's where people run into having more side effects, the dryness, the irritation, so forth and so on that you can get with Retin-A. Okay because it is stronger. And so, and you would need to go through a dermatologist or a doctor to get retin-A, right? Versus a retin yeah. And then there's different, there's, there's different forms of retin-A. So there's ones that are in a gel formula, which are really meant more for acne because obviously retin-A is used for acne. And then it's used also for anti-aging, which is more the Renova product where it's mixed with a moisturizer. And so that's a little less drying because obviously you're person with acne probably needs their face to be dried out, whereas your person who needs it for wrinkles probably doesn't need their face to be dried out. Oh my God, what if you need it for both? <laughs> well, a lot of people have that. You know, a lot of people complain. There's a lot of people like women in their 40s who are dealing with sort of hormonal acne where they also have wrinkles and they're just sort of like, how is this possible that I'm basically having wrinkles and acne all at the same time? But that's actually a really common, there's that period of time for about 10, 15 years where that's actually more common than you'd think. You'd be surprised, but anyway. <laughs> it's amazing, right? There's no escaping it. There is no escaping it. Yeah. One of the places that people might go to try to escape it is the facialist, yes. right? It's a facial, but it's been a long time since we've had people within inches of our face. Are there some sort of best safety protocols around facials or around even going to the dermatologist these days? Well, I can't speak for facialists. I mean, if there's somebody who's doing it sort of within kind of a dermatologist's office, then I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, I think pretty much everybody has to follow these protocols nowadays. So I don't really want to say a doctor's office is safer than a facialist's office. So just basically, I mean, any place that you go to, first of all, I think everybody there most likely is vaccinated because as medical professionals, everybody's going to be vaccinated. Secondly, there still are protocols in place where you have to take temperature for patients coming in. Um, we, you know, try to keep our waiting room as, as less crowded as possible, spacing out patients so you go directly into an exam room. Um, again, I can't speak, I, I can only speak from my own office, but I would imagine places must have all these protocols in place, excuse me, in place. Um, the person treating you has to keep their mask on. So they're gonna have their mask on. So I think if you're vaccinated and the person who is treating you is vaccinated and they keep their mask on, I think that you 
most likely can feel pretty safe. I mean, I know patients feel safe in my office. I mean, once they're vaccinated, they walk in, they're like, oh, I'm vaccinated, no problem. You know, they whip their mask. Ready to go. Yeah, so it seems like that. I, I, I really haven't run into anybody once they're vaccinated feeling nervous about taking their mask off so that you could do something on their face. Okay. Now, when we're thinking about the face and we're thinking about the facials and we talked about sunscreen, something mm -hmm. that we've experienced a lot over the last year, a lot more than we might have before are blue lights, right? Right. Is there anything that we need to be doing to protect our skin from, from the blue light that it's getting exposed to so regularly? Yeah, well, I mean, I think having sort of a, a sunscreen on and then if you get into, um, you know, another big part of skincare is using uh, not just the, the retinoids, but also vitamin C is a big, is a big thing that's in a lot of, um, you know, protocols when people ask me to make uh, skincare regimens for them. So I really like um, vitamin C serums. You can get it in various different degrees. Sometimes it can be in a, in a gel or a serum. They can, it, it's ascorbic acid, so it can be a little bit irritating, but basically you want something that works as, a, as an antioxidant, something that protects the skin, that reverses sort of the breakdown that can be coming from pollutants, light, you know, everything around you. You could mix in some vitamin E with it. So there's like a really good, serum that I like from SkinCeuticals that has, you know, vitamin C and vitamin E in it. So I would definitely be using those as part of a daily routine to protect your skin in general, just even from, so, you know, like one of the most basic routines would be uh, a, a, a sunscreen, uh, a serum that has vitamin C and E in it and a retinoid. And I think then like a retinoid at night, the other things in the morning. And then I think that you really are um, protecting your skin from all the various uh, forces that break down collagen and work towards aging the skin. Would you, would you do the sunscreen first or the serum first? You always want to put serums on first. You don't want to put the sunscreen, you know, so moisturizers, sunscreens, they always go last because you want to try to get serums or retinoids or any products like that, or HA creams all onto skin to be absorbed the most. So you don't want to have something thick, like a sunscreen blocking you from absorbing it from absorbing it in. Yeah, yeah. So you want I feel to like we could do an entire other episode on like the ordering of all these things that we put on our skin day in and day yeah. out. <laughs> it really does. No, it's true, it's true. So these things uh, are um, combination serums, then at least you kind of know they're all going in together, you know? So like yeah. that's the one that has the both C and the E in it. Like you don't have to think which one am I putting on first and what's going on together. So but you have to think that anything that's going to be thick, like a moisturizer or a sunscreen, obviously should go on last because nothing's going to really get through that to, to do anything effective. I mean, the whole point of that's it is to a barrier. So you don't want to put a barrier on first and then try to put these things on that are going to help your skin. It sort of doesn't really make sense. I'm sure <laughs> I've done it before. <laughs> but, you know, if you really step back and think about it, you would realize that you really can't go in that order. It doesn't really doesn't really make sense. <laughs> I, won't tell, I won't tell my former science teachers. <laughs> um, so now moving on from sort of the prevention okay. and you know thinking about things like that, let, let's talk a little bit about Botox. Okay. Okay. First off, does Botox really prevent 
aging. And one of the questions I got was around the idea that people who started in their 20s and then stopped when they were in their 30s because they were pregnant or whatever reason actually have wrinkles. And so the boat, like if, does Botox prevent wrinkles? Yeah, so, so those are two different things when you say prevent aging versus prevent wrinkles. So when you think about wrinkles, you have to sort of separate out what are dynamic wrinkles and what are passive wrinkles. So dynamic wrinkles come from the fact that you move your face so many times during the day. So just by making those muscles move, you know, hundreds of times during the day over many, many years, you're just going to grind patterns into your skin. So if somebody's a face talker where they just have a beautifully expressive face and they talk with their face, they are going to etch those lines in much, much faster than somebody who's not a face talker. So the lines that Botox is addressing are dynamic lines. They're not addressing fine lines and crepiness that the retinoids are addressing. Those are more passive lines. That's just from the breakdown of collagen and the skin sort of just folding in on itself. So Botox is addressing lines that you get from expression. So that person who started in their 20s, let's say, to do it preventatively, oops, sorry. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> sorry. Um, that person who started in their 20s to do it preventatively, if they were a face talker, then when they stopped in their 30s, let's say while they were trying to get pregnant and they're making those faces, expressions, they're etching in those lines. So it has nothing to do with the fact that like, the Botox caused it. If anything, the Botox was preventing it for those for those years that you were using it. But net net, you're not worse off that you were using the Botox. It's not as though like I used the Botox and then I stopped and now I'm worse off for it. If anything, you're probably still better off for it because you just weren't making those faces all those years. But you would still get the what did you say the passive wrinkles, right? Like you can't avoid. That, that just is happening as the skin ages. That has to go more into the whole sunscreen preventing breakdown of collagen. That just, that has to do with that. You know, that, that's just time marching on and things break down in your body and the skin breaks down. And, and so that, that's a different, that's a whole different conversation, but the, the Botox conversation. So Botox is used to you know, to, to, to make muscles either frozen, which I don't really love, but you know, you can freeze them or you can soften them or whatever word you want to say. So that for those couple months that you have the Botox in, you are not able to move those muscles. That's what Botox does. And there's a couple of different varieties of Botox too, right? So Botox is kind of the generic name that's been given for this whole category of, they're actually neuromodulators, right? Okay. So in that world, there's Botox, there's Dysport, there's Xeomin, and then there's Juveau. So there's four different types. Each have a very long, fancy name that we don't have to get into. <laughs> but by and large, there's been a lot of, um, so on Goop, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, I think she became a, a spokesperson for Xeomin. So that's considered, you know, the quote unquote, purest type of Botox. So all of a sudden there was a whole ad campaign based around that. 
because that doesn't have any proteins in it that help stabilize the toxin. And so that was considered or pushed or advertised as the most pure form of the neurotoxin. So that's, you know, it goes into that whole pure, clean kind of thing. And um, so that's, so those are the four names that you'll hear. You don't hear Juveau used so much, but the ones you mostly hear about are Botox, Dysport, and Xeomin. And anybody in their office, like we have all four in our office and, you know, different ones have different properties. Some you might be able to say, you know, kick in sooner, last longer. One maybe diffuses a little bit more. So it's good for a broader area. Maybe another one is more succinct. So it's good for a specific area. So you can get into like all sorts of conversations about it. But Botox is sort of just the generic name that people, I mean, it's, it's the most, it's the, it's the biggest brand for it, but I'm just saying there right. are are different ones in it. Well, it's like Kleenex and tissues, right? Yeah. Clean Xerox or, you know, yeah. for a copper Or if we were having a filler conversation, it would be about like Restylane versus Juvederm. Okay. To a degree, it's Coke versus Pepsi. Obviously there are slight differences and then it becomes a lot about like the user preference. So yeah. doctors are going to have that one that they prefer to use, you know, like somebody might prefer to use Dysport on the forehead because it's a bigger area or on the neck, we use both Dysport or maybe they wanna use something that's more pinpoint if you're dealing with you know, the crow's feet or, or you know, people do this thing now, lip flip, where you put a little Botox above the lip and they have to be really precise with that. Like that one you really can't mess around with because otherwise someone can end up looking kind of screwy for a little while. So, you know, you can think about Different things. I was going to say, speaking of looking screwy yeah. and Botox, yeah. can you address that viral video with the droopy eyelid and like with the Botox gone wrong? What, like, can you talk about that? Talk about looking screwy. Sure. So that's like what most people, so when you're given the consent form for Botox, that's always going to be listed there. And so that can happen to anybody it's it's and i think pretty much any dermatologist is going to you know i i i know one time where it happened to me i mean over 20 years so obviously knock on wood it hasn't occurred that often and you know you do things to try to avoid it happening obviously there are tricks that you do to try to avoid it but what happened was the muscle that so that gets into diffusion what i was mentioning when i use the word diffusion so sometimes you think you're putting the Botox, Dysport, whatever you want into a specific muscle and it can be due to somebody's anatomy where, you know, they're just slightly a little bit different where a different muscle connects in a little sooner than you expected. And you wouldn't know that just from looking at somebody, you know, cause obviously there's various differences in anatomy. And so, or just, it diffused just that extra little bit where it hit that muscle. So it just hit the nerve or the muscle that controls keeping the eyelid raised. And so when that gets hit, that's where you get that eyelid droop that people talk about. And unfortunately, unlike filler, where you can go in and dissolve filler, you can't reverse Botox, it just has to wear off. So she then used these drops that you can use that we people use in glaucoma to try and like strengthen it. But the thing that people confuse a lot about, there's people will talk about eyelid droop a lot of times when they're actually not talking about eyelid droop. So just to make clear the difference. Okay. So 
a lot of times when people get Botox, they'll come in and say, you know, I saw some other practitioner and I got an eyelid droop. And I'll ask them, did you really get an eyelid droop or did you have a heavy brow? Because those are two very different things. So what happens is Sometimes people over time use their frontalis muscle, which is the muscle that goes across the forehead to basically keep their brow up. And especially if someone sort of has heavy set brows to begin with, over time, you're using your frontalis more and more to keep it raised. So that if you knock out somebody's forehead and the whole brow goes down a millimeter or two, it doesn't have to take much and you're somebody who already has slightly heavy lids because that's just how you were born or that's just how you're aging, those lids will then go down just that millimeter or two where all of a sudden it gets hard to put eyeshadow on or it gets hard to do something. That's not an eyelid droop. That's a heavy brow, right? Okay. So very different things. One is somebody put too much Botox into their frontalis muscle and basically the whole thing just kind of symmetrically dropped. The other one is that you sort of hit when you were hitting the 11s in your, around the, your, in between your eyebrows and you hit uh, the muscle that keeps the eyelid up. And it's usually more of like an asymmetric thing, which is why you look so, that woman looks so screwy. Yes. <laughs> on side. It's not like it was sort of an altogether just kind of symmetrical drop of everything, if that makes sense. So a lot of times people will throw around that they thought they had an eyelid droop, but they didn't. I think an eyelid droop happens less, much less commonly than you'd think. Whereas the heavy brow can happen all the time. That, 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 that's a common occurrence. So how do you then figure out when you meet somebody for the first time, where to put Botox and how to do Botox? And I mean, I think you were talking a little bit about the conversations that you have with people, but. So I think it's really important when I meet somebody for the first time, I mean, obviously you want to say hi and introduce yourself. And I always like to get to know my patients and just sort of who they are. And you get a sense for, are they sort of somebody who's a high maintenance person, a low maintenance person? Is this something that you think that they're going to want to do and keep up? Are they somebody who is looking at you for something to do one time? They're not somebody who wants to come every three, four months to keep up their Botox. You get, an, a, you get a, a sense for their expressions, just somebody talking like in a five minute conversation, you know if somebody's a face talker. I mean that you know pretty immediately, like it's just clear. And then you also wanna know, did they ever have an experience getting Botox with somebody else? If they, if they, and this is where it comes up where they'll say, you know, I had it before and, and you know, I had a, a, a drop brow or I had a crazy eyebrow or I hated it or it felt so heavy that I couldn't, move and it drove me crazy. You know, so you get a sense of what they've had done or what they're looking for, you know? Yes. And, and then you and then you go through a conversation with them where, you know, you say to them like, okay, you know, if we put this all on your forehead and make you smooth like you want, be prepared that you might feel that your brow is heavy or that you can't put eyeshadow on your eyelid. And that's a personal choice. Somebody might say, I don't care. I want to have a smooth forehead, you know? Or you might say to somebody, you, you know, if do you want to, do you want to try and lift the sides of your brow? And then they're like, well, yes, but I don't want to look like a crazy, you know, reality show person with the crazy eyebrows that go up on the sides. So then you're like, okay, well, if we don't do that, then you know, you're gonna look smooth, but it might not lift as much. You know, just go through like what Botox can and can't do. You know, yeah. I think the 
lot of people think is that Botox can do this great lifting. There's a limit to what it can do. It, 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 it can lift the eyes a little bit. You can lift it a lot if you're willing to look a little unnatural, but in terms of lifting it, if you want to look natural, there's sort of a limit to what Botox can do. And then you also want to look at it in terms of how does a forehead play into a whole face in total? Because sometimes people come and they're so focused on the forehead, but that's actually not what's aging them. It's, it's loss of volume. A big thing is loss of volume in the temples. So for instance, that's one of my favorite procedures to do. So a lot of times with age, people lose volume in their temples, especially if they're thin. And then if you lose that, that immediately makes everything slide down because the minute you lose volume, the skin goes down. So if you just put filler, I know this isn't a filler conversation, but if you put filler into the temples, you actually, people are like, oh my God, my eyes opened up. It's actually remarkable. It's actually I was remarkable. Because I was gonna say like, what are some of the other things that you see people doing? And it's amazing. I don't think it had ever occurred to me I don't know how I feel about this conversation now because it never occurred to me to worry about my temples. <laughs> now I'm going to be paying attention. That's actually one of my favorite procedures to do because nobody will know that you did it. It's not obvious. It's not like putting filler into cheekbones or, you know, various parts of the face, lips, you know, where you could start to feel like I don't look like myself. Yeah. And it's crazy when you put filler into people's temples where they're just sitting there and they just look at you and they just, they feel that their eye opened up. Like they don't even have to look in the mirror. Like it just immediately opened up. It, it makes it, it, it makes a huge difference. And you really don't have to do it that often because it's not a part of the face that's, that's moving a lot. So the filler there actually can last for a really long time. I mean, it definitely can last like at least a year. You know, it's not so oh, wow. That is a long time. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to do filler in the temples that often. It actually, so I would say that's really one of my favorite procedures to do for sort of reviving that area because, and, and it's something where people don't realize that they should do it. So, so I was actually going to ask sort of what are some of the things? So would that be the main thing that you would recommend for lifting the skin above the eyes, right? For sort of opening the eye, or like, how do you think about if we move from sort of general wrinkles to thinking about the eyes, right? Right. How do you, would that be how you lift the eyes or? I mean, Botox does play a part. Obviously you try to get a little bit of a lift with Botox, right? So you, so you want to put some Botox in, there's no question about that. And then I think filler in the temples makes a huge difference. So you want to do that. And then there's more sort of complicated procedures that not everybody's up with, which you, I mean, this is good for a whole other conversation, but there's this whole thing now where more so with younger people than more mature people. And I put myself in more mature people at 56, but like where people want to look like Bella Hadid, you know, the model. Yes. It's this whole fox eye thing, which is like a little kind of screwy where people will get put threads in underneath to try and lift the corners of their eyes. I mean, that's not really something that the average person wants to do. So most people are super happy with Botox and filler. <laughs> and so, well, that's, that doesn't, I mean, basically not all my patients are happy with that. I mean, I happen to do threads in other parts of the face, but doing threads there is, is a little complicated and there's always, and, and there's risks of how it may look and so forth and so on. So Botox and filler make a big difference in lifting the sides of the face and lifting the, the corners, you know, lifting the eyes up. And then, and then also, 
putting Botox around the crow's feet too, because what happens is the muscle that goes around the eye, the orbicularis oris, that pulls down so that if you put some Botox a little bit into the crow's feet, that also helps everything lift up. Because when you think about the muscles in the face, there's, there's depressors and there's elevators. So that goes into the whole Botox thing where you have to think about where you're putting it. So if you're trying to, if you knock out certain things, then other things work better. They work unopposed. So okay. if around the crow's feet, which kind of pull down, then you can also get a little bit of a lift. So would you do Botox and fillers at the same time? Sure. So like yeah. I could come into your office and be like, okay, let's do some Botox and filler. I have like, I've done nothing yet. Let what you probably, but like you could do Botox and fillers on the same day. You don't have to sort of do one and then another. Oh, yeah. yeah, most people do it all on the same day. Yeah. Look at That's that one stop. Yeah, what? <laughs> one stop shop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the thing is though, filler you can see as you do it. So you know what it's gonna look like. I tend to with Botox, be somewhat conservative, sort of to avoid what happened with the person you're talking about with the, yeah, with the because it takes a good week to really know how Botox is going to turn out. So especially if I've never done it on somebody before, I personally think, or if anybody goes to anybody, you should really err on the side of caution because there is a wide variety on what Botox can do and how people react to it. Like some people eat it like water. I mean, it is amazing how much it takes to achieve the results on some people. And yes. some people just a little bit goes a really long way. And so until you know where you are, because like I said, you can dissolve filler if you don't like the way it looks. It's actually yes. Botox has to wear off. So the last thing you want to do is have too much, you know, Botox that has to, wear. I mean, it will wear off. It's not the end of the world, but it's better to put a little bit in come back a week later, take a look, see how it looks. And then if you need to add more in, I mean, we don't charge extra for that. That's just sort of all built in just so people yes. don't, feel, don't want to come back because then I have to pay more money. It's just kind of, that's just, we don't, Botox, people charge for Botox different ways. I mean, most, a lot of offices sort of in the neighborhood where I work just kind of charge a flat fee for the Botox. But then I know outside of the city or different parts of the city or various other providers, they charge by units. So sometimes people will like know exactly how many units they use because they were charged a certain amount, you know, so forth and so on. Yes. So, so you know, maybe somebody doesn't want to go back because then they have to pay more because they have more units, but we just have a flat fee. And so people are always happy. I mean, they come back until we get it right. You know, right. I'm not, it's not like I'm going to keep charging somebody to do that. So I just think that's a better way to go about it. Yeah. Now, if we think about the lifting the eyes right so we're talking about like the top part of the eyes what about like under the eyes right yeah. the the bags under the eyes is there anything that that can be done for those that's sort of not very invasive or is are there things that you see people doing that are more invasive yeah well i mean the gold standard is obviously getting plastic surgery so that's okay on on that's the gold standard uh in terms of fixing that, right? So, so, so that's if you get plastic surgery, you're actually treating it somehow. Where people, you know, do I don't, I'm not a plastic surgeon, but you know, they remove the bags. Different people have different techniques for it, and you can watch it all on Instagram. And okay. see. that's like 
So dermatologists cannot get rid of the bags under somebody's eyes. You, you cannot, right? Okay. You can get better or you can, so, so you can, you can do, um, there's some eye creams out there where they can make it better, you know, it can have caffeine in it. It can help with the puffiness. Um, the color can be helped with, with eye creams that maybe have vitamin K in it, a little bit of retinol, a little bit of vitamin C. So you definitely can try and make the skin better around it. Um, a big thing that one can do for the right patient is we can put filler in the tear troughs. So you can kind of try to soften the lid cheek junction, which is sort of a groove that happens. And so you can go a long way to softening that. So again, you are not getting rid of the underlying problem, which is the person has bags under their eyes. You are yes. just sort of softening it. And where are the tear troughs? What? Where are the tear troughs? The tear troughs is kind of, so if you feel the bone uh, under your, around your eye, like the, yeah. the if you kind of feel that area, that dented area kind of, so, so basically if someone has a bag, basically it's herniation of the fat that, that okay. happens with age because the muscle relaxes and we lose bone in our orbit. So you kind of make that hole bigger so it can kind of come out a little bit more. So some people get hollows and then some yeah. people get bags and then some people get bags and hollows. So, so, you know, there's a whole variety of things. It's very genetic. I mean, obviously it'll happen to everybody over time, but some people get it younger than other people, just simply genetics. They were like, oh, I look just like my mom. My mom had that, that's the way my eyes are, you know, it just has to do with anatomy. And so there's nothing that- I was gonna say, my dad and my kids have them. So I try to like, I think I need to take pictures of my kids today. So when they complain about them when they're older, I can yeah. say they are genetic. You've had them your whole life, kiddos. <laughs> nothing that you did or didn't do you know it's not one of those things with other stuff where you could say oh if only i'd worn sunscreen or if only i had started using retin-a when i was 10. i mean this is just the way it is so that's why i'm saying there's nothing a, dermat a dermatologist cannot get rid of the bags it just we don't have those tools in our toolbox okay so things where you can cover it or make it softer with filler um, you can try things like uh, microneedling where you can maybe, again, help it. But that, most of the things are addressing the skin. That's going to address more sort of the loose skin issues as opposed yeah. to bags, if you will, you know, if you call that. So. But it could make it look more like you're hoping it would look. Uh, could you make it? Yeah. I mean, you definitely can make it better. A hundred percent. You can make it better. But if somebody's goal is to have them be gone, that's what I'm sort of saying. Like you have to, that's an area where you always have to set people's expectations. So, you know, you, but you definitely can go a long way with filler in the tear troughs. And then a lot of times also, it becomes more pronounced as you lose volume in your cheeks. So usually if I'm going to do a little bit of filler under somebody's eyes, I usually will suggest that they put a little bit into their cheeks because sometimes what happens is that as you lose volume sort of like in the area right under your eyes, it all looks like it's falling a little bit. And so that 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 makes the bags look worse. Whereas okay. if you have a little bit of support in that area, so you have a little bit of volume back, it makes them look less like everything's falling and it just looks more like everything's staying up. Yeah, lifted up a little bit. Okay. Now moving, so we've done wrinkles overall, general skin care, the eyes. What about that 
chin and neck area. So one of the questions, if, if people could see me right now, they'd see me pulling on my chin, which I'm betting is not a good idea. But my question, the question that I got is what are clever ways to prevent double chins and chin sagging? Okay. Well, you use the word prevent. So, I mean, are we talking about like, okay, so preventing it. Okay. Again, there's genetics involved. Some people are just more prone to it than other people just by virtue of how their face is, how their chin is, just how they, how they have fat collect in their face. Like they could be a really thin person. And so, you know, they could just be somebody where that's just genetically where they store some fat. So like, there's all sorts of things that are beyond your control where like, you can't kind of fault yourself. That's just, again, like the way my mom was and my dad was and so forth and so on. Obviously keeping your, you know, your weight at a, at a, at a, at a, at a normal, at your, at a good spot is going to help, right? Because if you gain weight, it could go there. So you don't want to have so that's the first thing that, so you have genetics, then you have weight. And then, and then, so those are things you could do. So genetics, you can't prevent weight. You can prevent to a certain degree and yeah. then treating it, trying to make it look better. So there's a couple of different things you can do. So part of it has to do, you could try Kybella, which is a, which is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's an injection that dissolves fat. So Kybella you inject it sort of right in that area and that permanently dissolves flat. Um, that takes a couple of treatments, there's side effects. Not everybody's completely up for it, but it works really well and it dissolves fat. You can kind of get rid of that. We do something else called True Sculpt. There's also Cool Sculpting. So we do True yeah. Sculpt. True Sculpt in my office that we have that dissolves it by radio frequency as opposed to Cool Sculpting, which dissolves it by uh, freezing it. So you can either freeze the fat, you can keep the fat with true sculpt. So that's that area. Ultimately there's liposuction with a plastic surgeon or some dermatologists do liposuction in that area. And then, and then there's things you can do also. So part of it's also where as you lose bone in your jawline, the skin kind of that helps that, that that's part of the process of why everything starts to fall that you've lost bone. So you can put filler along the jawline. You can put a little filler to people's chins and sort of rebuild back up that jawline a little bit. And then that helps to kind of bring everything back up. And that makes more of a delineation between the face and the neck and sort of gives that look of more of a, of a jawline, which is helpful in making that, that area look slimmer. Now, when you say, you may have seen my jaw drop for a moment. So lose. <laughs> bone in the jawline so we, we lose bo bone in our jawline and like if I take calcium like should I be taking calcium pills to prevent that so basically one of so so sometimes when you talk about like why should you go to a doctor versus somebody else to do all this stuff so there's aside from just understanding anatomy of how you know where muscles are and nerves are and arteries and veins and so forth and so on a person's face so the, the aging face, if you looked at pictures of what somebody's skull looks like at 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, a lot of what you see happening on the outside would be seen on the inside if you could see how the changes in the bones of your face 
cause aging, right? So for instance, around the eye, as we lose bone, which we do, you know, even if you take your calcium, we all lose bone. This is part of the aging process. That's part of what makes the fat herniate, the orbit gets bigger. So it just makes that puff out a little bit more. The zygomatic arch, which is your cheekbones, we lose that. So if somebody starts off with great bones, you know, they always are talking about people like, oh, they have great bones, they're gonna age so well, because that's the scaffold, that's, that, that's the foundation that's holding everything up, right? It's the bones at the bottom, it's the bones in your face. So if you lose bones in your cheeks, then everything starts to fall a little bit more, right? So, so if jawline, that's why our teeth move as we get older. It's because everything you're getting demineralized. So if you lose your, we all start to lose your jawline. So you'll start to see, you know, people, people, especially you can see it back um, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the, at the like by the earlobe almost. Yeah, underneath there, where you have sort of just the the, the mandible. As you oh, look yeah. that you know, some people have more squared off jaws to begin with, but as you lose that, and then you can lose bone in your chin and just all along your jawline, skin falls down more. So it's basically, you can do things to build back up the bone with radius or Juvederm or Restylane. I mean, that's, 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 it makes a big difference. I am blown away. Oh <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for, for talking with me and my listeners today because I didn't I didn't blow everybody away I mean I hope I didn't freak everybody out with some <laughs> oh no I'm not freaked out I learned so much listening to you speak this is oh. Oh, well, I'm happy to speak again if you get any more questions I'm mean, I, I, more than I I'm happy we didn't even address a whole host of things like Fraxel and microneedling and PRP and hair restoration and all sorts of things that can be done well, there will be a round two then. There will be a round two because what I'm noticing that surprised me more than I thought that it would is how much what you do is about education, right? Yeah. Even in your day-to-day -day interactions with your patients and, you know, somebody might come in thinking that what they absolutely need and want is ABC, right? When really it's X, Y, Z that will make the difference that they're looking for, right? It's more about the outcome that they want than yeah. what procedure they want. And it's surprisingly similar to the way sort of I spend a lot of time working with, with my clients, which is around sort of like, what do you value and what do you want to accomplish? And that's going to drive how we're investing for you more so than okay, I want you know, this stock and that stock, and that's what we should do. Right. Oh, I spent a lot of time explaining it. That's why, I mean, the nurses in my office sometimes have a joke when, they, when they're coming to uh, get me to go into an exam room to see a patient, and I'll sort of say to them, like, oh, why is so-and-so here? And they're like, I don't know. She just told me that uh, whatever Dr. Zeitler needs to do is fine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, because they don't even know. Do you know what I mean? And, and I guess they trust me that, you know, I kind of go for a natural look, I look natural. It's not as though I've put tons and tons of stuff in my own face. And so, yeah, there's a big, there's a big aspect of that where, you know, you sort of, that's why you have to trust who you're going to. I mean, if I can just say one last parting thing. So a lot of times, you know, there's a million doctors out there and, and, you know, the stuff is all the same stuff. Nobody's inventing something new. Everybody's using the same Juvederm and Restylane and, you know, me so forth and so on. 
And obviously there's different places you can go, more expensive places, less expensive places, again, wide variety. What you really are looking for is you're paying for or you're going for somebody's eye, how they see things. That's really whoever you go to, you just have to make sure that you're in line with how they see things. Because that's why when you walk around and you see people who are overdone or people have too much stuff in, they may want that. I mean, that might be what they want. And then they're going to somebody who wants to do that, you know? Yeah. So you have to like, because you can't, as you're saying, manage your own face with this stuff. The most important thing is to just go to somebody who, what they want, what they see is what you see or how, or what, how you want to look is how they would want you to look. Does that make sense to you? And then, and then if you have that trust with somebody, I guess it's the same way with an investment person. You know, if you want somebody who's going to, you know, invest everything you own in some, you know, crazy stock, because maybe there's a great return that you can get, and you're willing to take that risk, then you go to that person. If you're going to go to somebody who's just going to buy you treasury bills, you go to that person. So you have to find the person who's most in line with what you want and what you see, because I think that's where you get bad outcomes, where if somebody's looking for a very natural look, and then they go to somebody who's great at doing a more overdone look, you're not going to have a great outcome. Even with right. the real products. Right. Making sure that sort of there's an alignment in the values yeah. and the, 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 the aesthetics. Yeah. And then so. you can see that person's going to do what you want. That's if fantastic. Well, I see that we both work with lots of people during different stages of their life, right? <laughs> Whether it's, you know, early on or or as they get more mature, I'm going to remember those words, more mature. And, you know, with, like, with me, my family engagement team, one of my senior investment strategists, or Liz, you can reach me at emily.grace at bernstein.com.